made known through revelation. That's a phrase I picked up from New Testament scholar Don Carson. Ordinarily, history is made known through eyewitness testimony or through the accumulation and study of records uh, or through the recording and passing down of oral traditions. Sometimes history is made known through ex- extrapolation through, from physical means, like through archaeology. Historians might use a combination of these methods to provide a historical account. Dr. Carson was commenting specifically on the early chapters of Genesis, as they were apparently understood by the Apostle Paul. We have argued that the book of Genesis was written down by Moses for the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, and we've argued that the primary genre of the book appears to be straightforward historical narrative. We've noted that some evangelical scholars in recent years have begun arguing strongly against this, suggesting that particularly the first 11 chapters are a kind of mytho-history, a genre that tells a story in order to communicate certain values for the audience, but doesn't actually intend to record historical events. Apparently, without a hint in the text to his readers, Moses abruptly shifts in chapter 12 to recording straightforward historical narrative. We've looked at some reasons why I personally don't believe this is acceptable, but Dr. Carson points to another. The Apostle Paul draws on certain specific details of the account from Genesis 1 to 3, especially that seem to suggest that he read it as straightforward historical narrative. Some evangelical scholars have sought to dismiss this, suggesting that whether Paul personally believed it to be historical narrative or not is irrelevant. It is suggested that Paul is not commenting one way or another on the historicity of the events he appeals to. Instead, he simply uh, draws a theological lesson from the story that is now authoritative for us readers because the Holy Spirit produced the text of Genesis and the Holy Spirit produced the text of Paul's letters. According to these scholars, whether the early chapters of Genesis contain historical events and real historical people must be investigated through other means, if such historicity can be plausibly supported at all. In spite of the arguments used to support these claims, I remain convinced that Paul's appeals to details of the creation account do, in fact, press us readers to see the events recorded as actual, factual, historical happenings. I believe the validity of Paul's biblical argumentation is connected to the historicity of the events. So, when Paul says that Adam was created before Eve, I believe God intends us to believe that he created Adam before Eve, just as Genesis 2 tells us. I see no good reason to attempt to dodge that simple conclusion. Last week, we considered the creation of the woman in Genesis 2. She is the proper partner for man. This morning, I'd like to look at one of the two primary passages where Paul draws out some implications from the narrative of Genesis 2. Both passages are ridiculously controversial. I want to focus on Paul's reading of Genesis as reflected in these passages. Paul sees the creation of the woman in relationship to the man in Genesis as having certain specific implications for Christian women in the church. Though both of these passages express certain limitations for Christian women. 
I hope we'll all see clearly how both of these passages highlight the God-designed beauty of women, as well as the proper partnership in ministry between men and women in the church. This morning, we're going to look at 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 to 15. In two weeks, we'll consider the other passage, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16. So let's read 1 Timothy 2, 8 to 15. Paul writes, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. There's a lot there, isn't there? So we begin in verses 8 to 10, where Paul commands the men to pray in church and the women to adorn in church. Paul sets the stage for his instruction here with the phrase, in every place, in verse 8. Surely he means in every place where Christians gather together regularly. Thus, all the instructions in this passage apply precisely to the context of local church gatherings. He's writing to Timothy, who's been sent to Ephesus to help the church solidify leadership and deal with false teaching and false teachers there. Paul makes it clear that what he's saying here doesn't just apply to the church in Ephesus. It's for every place. As Paul is writing Spirit-inspired scripture here, Paul's desire is God's desire. What Paul wants is what God wants. Thus, we have a series of commands for how men and women are to conduct themselves in specific ways when they gather together as a church family. Perhaps he draws attention to these things because he knows that the church in Ephesus, in particular, has not been doing these things properly. But these practices and attitudes are God's will for every church in every place. This paragraph comes in the midst of a larger section that ranges from chapter one, verse one, or chapter two, verse one, all the way through chapter four, verse six. And he spells out his purpose for writing these things to Timothy in chapter three, verses fourteen and fifteen. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So Paul breaks down some specific instructions for Christian men and some specific instructions for Christian women as they gather together for corporate worship. First, in 1 Timothy 2.8, he addresses Christian men, commanding them to pray. Now, don't think this, this means that women shouldn't pray in church. We'll see in 1 Corinthians 11 that they did and they should. Paul says that the men specifically should pray with something and without something. Christian men should pray with holy hands. Lifting hands was a physical gesture like this with palms upward 
in a receiving posture, ready to receive a gift. It's the beggar's posture, as it were. The word translated holy is a less frequent word for holiness. We might think of a parallel when we read this with the common image of clean hands, but this particular word doesn't really shade over into the cleanness realm. Instead, the word points toward right behavior, being acceptable to God or doing what is acceptable to God. But this symbolic gesture is not really about our physical hands. Hands represent our actions, our deeds. So the lifting of holy hands in prayer seems to reflect Christian men praying in church, taking the posture of a receiver, not a demander, not a barter, but a receiver while presenting themselves to God with honesty and in pursuit of righteous living. The with and without descriptions go together. Thus, lifting holy hands is the opposite of raising angry fists, whether toward God or toward other people. You can't lift holy hands when you're cultivating angry disputes. In other words, this verse seems to warn Christian men of the danger of how unresolved anger can negatively impact your praying, particularly when you pray together with other Christians at church. Christian men should be known in the church for their praying, not for their anger problems. So the encouragement to Christian men is let go of your anger. Open your hands. Receive forgiveness and mercy from the Lord and pray, approaching the throne of grace, asking for help like we practiced last week. In verses 9 and 10, Paul turns to the women commanding them to adorn themselves. And again, we see the with-without pattern. But this time, the without is bracketed by two kinds of with. When we combine the withs, it becomes clear that Paul might not be talking about literal clothing at all. The command begins in verse 9, Likewise also, I desire that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. The word translated apparel shows up as to dress, clothing, and appearance in other versions in this verse. This is the only occurrence of the word in the New Testament, and when that happens, it's often helpful to go to the dictionaries. The standard Greek lexicon indicates that this word readily serves to express outward attire, either the character one exhibits in personal deportment or something to cover the body namely attire or clothing. Paul may have chosen this rare word in this verse in order to play on both of those meanings. As with the men's holy hands, which doesn't refer to their literal hands, perhaps the women's respectable apparel isn't really actually referring to clothing. Consider the three widths. First, in verse 9, he elaborates with modesty and self-control, as the ESV has it. It's interesting to see that different English Bibles have the English word modesty in different places in this verse, representing different Greek words. So it's it's in there, but what does it actually mean? That becomes the important question. Do we know what we're talking about when we talk about modesty? Do we know what the Bible's talking about when it uses the language of modesty? Christians have sometimes been prone toward creating dress codes that define modesty. Some Christians have said, women and girls should always wear dresses to church. Women and girls should never wear pants to church. 
Remember those days? They're still around. Sometimes this passage is used to support such rules. However, the concept of modesty reflected in this passage isn't directly about clothing. Modesty reflects internal attitudes that, yes, impact and influence the way women and men choose to dress. Paul attaches the word self-control here, a word that emphasizing mastering one's own selfish impulses to Christian women's adornment. In other words, as we apply this to the way women dress and men, we can say that Christian women or Christian men shouldn't dress so as to draw attention to themselves. Neither. It it applies to both men and women equally. The passage is also wrongly brought into discussions of lust among Christian men. Paul says nothing. Paul implies nothing about the danger of the way Christian women dress might tempt men to lust. Legalistic dress codes will never fix the problem of lust. Paul's point is more straightforwardly found in how he addresses the heart of Christian women here. This does have something to do with the clothes Christian women choose to wear to church. Christian women ought to exercise wisdom in how they dress. But that is not the main point. In verse 10, he makes the main point clear. The internal attitudes of modesty and self-control need to be expressed in good works. Thus, as we bring in the withouts of verse 9, we can see how all this fits together. He says that Christian women should not adorn themselves with fancy externals, braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly attire. Now, I don't believe that he is saying that Christian women should never braid their hair or wear gold jewelry, or a pearl necklace, or expensive name-brand clothing when they come to church. He's likely reflecting on the social significance of these things in Ephesus. The reason wearing such things would be a problem for Christian women in Ephesus is that by doing so, almost necessarily, they would be interpreted as either flaunting their wealth or drawing attention to themselves, and thus drawing attention away from God. In other words, Paul's point is simply that Christian women should seek to be known for their good works and not for how they dress. In verse 11, Paul issues a command for Christian women to learn in church. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. As we recall that Paul is directly addressing Timothy... We can recognize this is what it really is, an indirect command. The force of the command can be brought out in English as women must learn. Christian women must learn in church. Thus, Paul wants Timothy as a church leader to make sure that the women in the church of Ephesus are learning. And what is it that they are to be learning? that which is being taught when the church gathers. Thus, this is a command for Christian women to prioritize learning God's word, learning theology. Ladies, come to church wanting to learn, expecting to learn. We don't recognize how important this command is coming from the Jewish Apostle Paul in the first century. Most Jewish teachers did not encourage Jewish women to learn Scripture. They could attend the synagogues, but they typically weren't pursued as students 
by rabbis. So recognize how Paul is going not only against his culture, but also against his own training here. He's also elevating Christian women significantly in their context. In this, he is just like Jesus. Jesus treated the women who followed him as disciples, learners, students. I can't help but remember Mary. She's a good example of a woman who was welcome to sit at Jesus' feet. He sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Meanwhile, her sister Martha was busy preparing food and wanted Mary to help her in the kitchen. When Martha complains and tells Jesus to tell Mary to help her, you remember his response? It's in Luke 10, 41 and 42. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. To sit and learn from God's word, as Jesus taught it, was the good portion. There is a time for serving, and there is a time for learning. Jesus doesn't say one is more important than the other, but he commends Mary for making a good choice. Husbands, do you think that way about your wife? Do you see it as a good thing that she might choose to sit and study her Bible? Or are you quick to criticize her because she's not serving enough around the house? How can you better encourage her and make room for her to learn more of God's word, both in church and at home? We are disciples of Jesus, learners of Jesus, students of Jesus. This is one of the main reasons we all should come to church. In church, Paul commands Christian women to learn. But Paul's focus in verse 11 is on the manner of their learning. He commands them to learn quietly. This word doesn't characterize women as generally silent. Rather, in this context, it refers to her having a teachable spirit. It's related to the word used back in verse 2 of this same chapter to characterize all believers, Christian men and women. Paul had said that we pray for government leaders, especially with the hope that they might enact and enforce laws that enable Christians to live peaceful and quiet lives. In that context, quiet shades over from teachableness to being without contentiousness, not living in a defensive posture, feeling like you've always got to fight a battle. Unfortunately, the current climate of our culture, opposed as it generally is to Christianity, Jesus, and a biblical way of life, makes it very difficult for Christians to live a peaceful and quiet life. But we pray toward that end anyway. For Christian women in the church, there should be an attitude of teachableness, a desire to learn, a respect for the authority of the one teaching God's word and for the word itself, most of all. He adds the phrase here, in all submissiveness. In this context, this word submission has nothing to do with marriage. Her submissiveness is to be expressed toward the teaching, recognizing the authority of the one's teaching in church. This submissiveness, of course, doesn't mean that Christian women can never disagree with what comes out of the mouth of the preacher or the Bible teacher. Paul is pressing on Christian women's attitude when learning God's word in church. Mary, again, sitting at Jesus' feet, is the picture of what Paul is describing. So, as this command is directed to Timothy, 
How is he, how are church leaders supposed to respond to this? Church leaders must seek to cultivate an environment that is conducive to both women and men learning God's word. We should seek to minimize distractions. And Paul highlights Christian women's need to learn, call to learn, so that we ought to consider minimizing distractions unique to women. I suppose this is one reason for providing a functional nursery and a separate space for children to learn God's word. Inevitably, moms in church are going to be distracted when their child acts up or when their baby cries. Now, this is nothing to be embarrassed by. Each woman should feel completely free to have their children with them during the sermon or to send them out into other places and have other people care for them. We want freedom there, and we want Christian mothers to know that it's important and valuable for them to learn God's Word, and we want to help them do that well. In order to help more Christian women in our church pursue learning God's Word as it is preached from this pulpit every Sunday, I wonder if you, you, whoever you are, would consider volunteering to spend some time in the nursery or in junior church or in toddle time to provide some assistance there. I'm calling on the men in our body at this point, but also the women, to consider serving in this capacity at least sometimes to share the load in order to facilitate the women of this church having more opportunities to learn God's word consistently. There are some women in our body who are not in this room very often when the word is being taught and preached on Sunday mornings. I never hear them complain at all. They're certainly honoring the Lord by their continual service. But can more of us step up so that they might play the role of Mary more often than they play the role of Martha? Can we work together as a family to accommodate the women of our body, to enable them to learn God's word? Is that a priority for us? Also, we have this women's discipleship group that meets on Sunday evenings now. The book the ladies are reading and discussing is one that I think is excellent and very helpful for both men and women. It's called Help for the Hungry Soul, Eight Encouragements to Grow Your Appetite for God's Word. Maybe you're a woman here and you don't see the importance of studying theology or going deeper in your understanding of the Bible. Maybe you just see all the other things in your life as more important or certainly more necessary so that you just can't carve out the time for Bible study, whether in a group or on your own. I encourage you to get a copy of this book. And if you haven't already, connect with Brandy Lasnick and get involved with the Women's Discipleship Group. I'd like to share a couple of snippets from that book. At one point, the author shares a testimony from a young man in ministry who had lost his appetite for God's Word. Did you know even pastors can struggle with wanting to read the Bible? That's a thing. What did he do? He says, I decided that I was going to read my Bible anyway. I didn't feel like reading it, but I knew that my Christian life would shrivel up and die without it. So I dragged my heart along and prayed that the Lord would help me grow to love His Word. And do you know what I noticed? Over time, my heart didn't have to be dragged anymore. As I forced myself to dutifully read it, and that is how it felt, 
I found myself beginning to delight in it, to crave it. God's word created a hunger for itself. Yeah, that is the way it often works. Of course, Christian men need to learn God's word with the same kind of attitude as the women Paul is thinking of. All Christians, Christian men and Christian women, need to prioritize learning God's word. Why? The author of the book, Kristen Wetherill, explains. The point of our scripture intake, then, isn't to complete a process, attain a proficiency, or fix our problems, but to meet an actual person. Truly, to encounter the risen Christ. Did you know that that is why you need to learn God's Word? Did you know that is why I preach the way that I do, seeking to point you to Jesus every Sunday from every text? That is what is offered to you every time you open the Bible, a genuine encounter with the resurrected King. We get to see Him together right here, right now as we listen to God's Word together. And we get to do that as well when we read our Bibles and seek to understand His Word at home. Christian women need to learn Scripture, need to learn theology, in order to grow in trusting Jesus for the everyday struggles of life. What is available for Christian women Sunday after Sunday here is a verbal vision of Jesus presented to you in ways that can transform your perspective on life give you hope when you're despairing, call you to look away from yourself and correct your thinking that might have gone astray. That's available to you every Sunday, even without opening your Bible at home during the week. Are you seeking to learn with a teachable spirit, ready to believe whatever is true, ready to obey whatever is right that's drawn out of this book? And as we'll return to in just a bit, Christian women need to learn Scripture and theology so that they might teach Scripture and theology. Christian women, learn in church. As we venture into verses 12 to 14, Paul tells Christian women something that they can't do in church. Christian women shouldn't teach or exercise authority over men in the church. This is where Paul feels the need to draw from the creation account in Genesis to ground his instruction. Look at verses 12 to 14. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Many Christians raise an eyebrow, scrunch up their noses, and just plain don't like these verses. Controversy swirls around these verses. The statement in verse 12, however, is a clear and universal limitation. But still, as many of you will know, there are many Christians today who have sought to redefine the terms of this verse or limit its application to only the first century. I will not seek to debunk all those arguments this morning, For those who want to dig in and understand exactly why the evangelical egalitarian perspective, as it is called, on these verses utterly fails, I recommend the work of Mike Winger, who has a YouTube channel where he addresses lots of different stuff, topics and questions related to the Bible and Christian life. He has a series on women in ministry that is quite good. His video on this passage goes through all of the various arguments and thoroughly meticulously shows how they don't work. 
His video on this passage is only 11 and a half hours long. And I promise my sermon will not be that long. I hope he breaks that down into smaller videos at some point. But I have watched it in its entirety, and I think he does an excellent job explaining the ins and outs of the debate. He also provides his exhaustive notes for free on his website, so you could download them and search them and find what you might be looking for. I will address a couple of matters, though. One way folks want to suggest that this passage doesn't apply to churches today is by suggesting that there was a particular problem with women in the church of Ephesus teaching false doctrine. But that is a repeated assertion with absolutely zero data to support it. Likewise, some go to great lengths to say that the background of this passage has to do with the worship of the Roman goddess Artemis in Ephesus, which featured prophetesses and priestesses and women's dominance as part of the religious culture. If you hear or read someone suggesting that the cult of Artemis in Ephesus is a reason for Paul's command here, and that means the limitation on women teaching in the church only has relevance for the first century context, just know that the scholarly literature on the cult of Artemis has produced zero evidence in support of this claim. Pastor Kevin DeYoung indicates that this is more fiction than fact. Someone to paint first century Ephesus as though it were a first century hotbed for feminist ideas, but this is simply not true. Now, it's interesting to observe that even evangelical egalitarians understand this verse as straightforwardly prohibiting Christian women from teaching men, but they then seek to limit the extent of this prohibition for various reasons, so that it somehow doesn't apply to our churches today. Notice how verses 11 and 12 parallel each other. In verse 11, he commanded women to learn in church. In verse 12, he prohibits women from teaching men in church. In verse 11, he commanded women to learn in church with all submissiveness. In verse 12, he prohibits women from exercising authority over men in church. At the end of verse 12, he reiterates verse 11. The ESV translates Paul's Greek as, she is to remain quiet. More literally, this would be simply, she is to be in quietness. In other words, the end of verse 12 reiterates that Christian women are to receive teaching in church from authorized Christian men with a teachable spirit rather than seeking to teach men in church or exercise authority over men in church. As these verses bump up against the next paragraph, chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, it's reasonable to connect the teaching and exercising authority with the primary responsibilities of overseers, also known as elders, also known as pastors in the New Testament. Thus, as is relatively clear in chapter 3, Paul limits the office of elder to Christian men who meet certain qualifications. So then, Christian women are here prohibited from performing the primary function of elders or serving in the office of elder. The universal aspect of this limitation is reinforced by Paul's biblical Old Testament basis for the prohibition. In verses 13 and 14, he appeals to both creation and fall, Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. So reason number one comes from the creation sequence. God formed Adam from the dust of the ground on day six of creation week. Then, probably hours later, after Adam has named a number of land animals and birds, God built Eve from Adam's side, as we saw last week in Genesis 2. 
Paul points to this sequence of Adam first, then Eve, as supporting his prohibition of Christian women from teaching or exercising authority over Christian men in church. How does the logic work? It's a reasonable question. In their worldview, sequence implies preeminence and authority. This is seen most clearly in primogeniture, the law of the firstborn. Famously, in the book of Genesis, there are several occasions when the rights of the firstborn are taken away from the firstborn and extended to a younger sibling. Even with the twins, Esau and Jacob, Esau was the firstborn, which meant he had primary inheritance rights and he would have been expected to carry a certain authority over his younger brother, even though Jacob was presumably born minutes before Esau, after Esau. But rather famously, Jacob ends up receiving both the birthright and the blessing due to Esau. But the reason this is noteworthy is because it doesn't fit the expected pattern. Indeed, Paul draws attention to this reality as evidence of how God's purpose of election carries on in history. God's gracious intervention can overturn the normal order of relationships. Paul here points to Adam's creation hours ahead of Eve to support the practice of churches not appointing female elders. This is to say that in the case of Christian churches, God has not indicated in his word a reversal of the created norm. Adam was granted a certain measure of authority in the garden in relationship to Eve by virtue of his being created first and therefore being older, as well as his naming of the woman and also his receiving of God's commands directly. He was steward of God's word, presumably carrying the responsibility to communicate God's word to the newly created woman at his side. This created order is not overturned by the rebellion of the first human couple. As the church is God's new creation people, the pattern of authority established in creation remains when it comes to the teaching of God's word especially. But Paul does show that the rebellion of humanity reinforces this pattern. Thus, he adds a second reason supporting the pattern of Christian women not teaching or exercising authority over men in church. He points to Genesis 3 and highlights the undermining of authority in the original human rebellion. When we look at Genesis 3 in a few weeks, we'll see how this undermining of authority is featured by Moses. Paul observes how Eve was deceived and became a transgressor. And her transgression included more than simply eating a particular forbidden fruit. Rather, her transgression included ignoring and trampling over the authority of both God and her husband. Paul points to that basically suggesting that he doesn't want that undermining of authority to be replicated in the church. In a sense, when Eve decided for herself that it would be a good idea to eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and when she handed some fruit to Adam for him to eat, she exercised authority over him. And when God shows up in Genesis 3 to pronounce judgment, his indictment of Adam focuses on his, on his obeying his wife's voice, even though the narrative of Genesis doesn't indicate that she said anything at all. Adam submitted to her authority in a way he should not have done which is part of the reason we see Paul especially laying the blame for the original human rebellion on Adam's shoulders, not Eve's. Thus, when Paul mentions Eve's being deceived and Adam's not being deceived, I don't believe he is even hinting at the possibility that women might be more gullible, more easily deceived. 
Please do not let anyone abuse this text to lead you to believe that. All in all, these two reasons from creation and original human rebellion establish an authority structure that Paul says is to be maintained in every place where Christians gather to worship. Christian women ought not to seek to teach the Scriptures to men in church. Christian women ought not to exercise authority over men in church in the capacity of a pastor or an elder. The original human rebellion was not the beginning of this authority structure. Now, notice that I have emphasized Paul's indication that this is in the context of the local church. Thus, Paul doesn't say anything about whether or not Christian women can exercise authority over men in government or business. Paul doesn't prohibit women from teaching men the Bible or doctrine in the context of a seminary or a college setting. I can highlight my own experience here. For my undergraduate degree at Laterno University in Longview, Texas, one of my professors was Renata Hood, an excellent New Testament scholar. I ended up taking 11 classes with her, including all of my New Testament courses and several semesters of Greek. Now, though she is a Dutch woman with a powerful personality, she is not some evangelical feminist. In fact, her, she is married to a Southern Baptist pastor who also taught church history at Laterno. And as far as I know, she never preached, pursued preaching or teaching in a church setting. I don't think she was violating Paul's instruction here, nor was I in sitting in her classes. Thus, by implication, it's probably not a violation of this text for Christian women to record their Bible teaching and post it online or print it in books. And it's probably not a violation of this text for Christian men to learn from those Christian women. There is a danger here, though, for both men and women. Since Bible teaching is so readily available on the Internet and through books, there can be a tendency to depend on those resources as our primary instruction. We all have our favorite authors and our favorite preachers that we listen to on the radio or the Internet. The normal pattern laid out in the New Testament is that we'd be nourished by the proclamation of God's Word in a particular local church served by particular elders. When we seek to replace our local pastors with famous pastors or Bible teachers who never see our faces, who don't have any direct access into our lives, we can undermine the primary means God intends to use to bring us spiritual growth and we can be, thereby, very easily deceived and confused. Books, Bible studies, online preaching and teaching, all of it can be used to supplement our spiritual growth. Think about that, supplement. I mean, we, we know what physical um, dietary supplements are. You don't live on those, hopefully. You take them to supplement online teaching, Christian books, those kinds of things work like that. Um, throughout 1 Timothy, Paul's instruction indicates that Christian men and Christian women need to be committed to learning God's Word together in churches led by qualified elders who consistently teach and preach God's Word faithfully. That's the normal Christian life right there. Well, I suppose I've still got to say something about verse 15. I was hoping to run out of time. You want to hear something everyone agrees on from this passage, it's how difficult verse 15 is. 
I believe the verse has something to say about the salvation of both men and women, but this is not clear at all. As we look at this verse, I'm not going to unpack all the various options or delve into all the various issues. Ultimately, how we understand verse 15 doesn't really affect how we interpret the rest of the passage. So that's good. Look at the verse again from the ESV. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So that's a pretty straightforward, clear, and literal translation of the Greek. But what does it mean? What is it talking about? The major questions surround the meaning of the word saved and the significance of the pronoun shift from she to they. What does Paul mean by saved? Is he referring to being safely carried through the painful process of giving birth to a baby? Or is he referring to eternal salvation from sin? I believe the word must be taken as referring to eternal salvation, as it always does in Paul's letters to Timothy. As soon as I say that, we are confronted with a problem or problems. How in the world is anyone to be saved from sin, saved from God's wrath, through childbearing? Does this imply that Christian women must have babies in order to be saved? Some have taught so. Is this some form of salvation by works? Some have taught so. Well, the most common view amongst complementarians like myself is that childbearing is being used as a kind of figure of speech, a synecdoche. You can Google that if you can spell it, or you can ask me later. A synecdoche, a part standing for a whole, This would mean that Paul is looking at the salvation of women in particular, and he's saying that eternal salvation comes through faith as it's expressed in a woman's acceptance of her God-defined feminine role, the major example of which is carrying and bearing children. Only women can do this because only females have the anatomy required for this task. Period. Thus, Paul is saying, maybe, that a distinctly feminine act, he's referring to a distinctly feminine act to press Christian women not to throw off their feminine identities as Christians. In line of Paul's words in Galatians 3.28, there is no male and female for those who have put on Christ. Christians might wrongly conclude that means Christians should be genderless. Instead, Citizens of the new creation embrace their old creation gender identity based on their created biological sex. I used to hold this view, but I, and I think it's a valid reading of the text, but I now think that it's way too complicated. I don't know that the alternative is any less complicated, but let's see. Here's the alternative. There's a minority view that's been held throughout church history that is very intriguing to me, and I'm pretty well tipped over like... confident here that this is actually what's being presented here. If you want to know more about it, you can go to Mike Winger's video and fast forward to the end of the 11 and a half hours, and you can hear how he argues for this position. There's a detail in the Greek text that's not usually brought out in English that might be helpful or even perhaps crucial here. The word childbearing in Greek carries the definite article. 
In other words, we could translate the key phrase here, yet she will be saved through the childbearing. Paul's use of the definite article might suggest that he's got in mind a specific occasion of childbearing. Maybe it's the Christmas season, overwhelming my interpretation here. But it seems reasonable that he might be suggesting a reference to the bearing of a royal child who accomplished the salvation of sinners, the one Paul referred to earlier in this chapter as the one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So in the context of 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul has already drawn attention to the humanity of the divine Savior. He was, after all, born to die as one of my favorite Christmas songs declares. Now, no one is saved by believing in Jesus' birth. However, there is one other passage where Paul connects salvation with Jesus' birth. In Galatians 4, 4 and 5, we read, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Redemption was not accomplished at Christmas. Redemption was accomplished on the cross at Calvary. But without Christmas, there would be no cross. What do we do with the pronouns? Who is she in verse 15? Well, it seems to point back to the woman in verse 14. That is the woman referred to in Genesis 2 and 3, the woman named Eve. Thus, Eve will be saved through the childbearing. Viewed this way, Paul may be still thinking about Genesis 3, particularly particularly verse 15. In God's calling to account for the human rebellion of Genesis 3, he addresses the serpent, announcing judgment against it and against the spiritual power inhabiting it. The Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel." Of course, we'll look at this text more closely in a few weeks, but notice the promise of offspring announced. And this is presumably in the hearing of Adam and Eve. In the next verse, Genesis 3.16, the Lord addresses the woman and announces the multiplication of pain in childbearing. But verse 15 indicates that in spite of the pain, the woman will have offspring, will bear children. And one occasion of childbearing will produce a particular male offspring who will crush the head of the spiritual power inhabiting the serpent, even as the serpent kills that male offspring. Paul might be thinking of this promise. Salvation for Eve would come through this distant male offspring. Salvation for Eve and all her offspring, those who share her faith, will be saved through the one who would be born of woman to accomplish redemption through his death. So, if she is Eve, who are they? Paul adds, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Well, again, in the immediate context, they could be Adam and Eve together. But there's a detail that points maybe in a different direction. The phrase, with self-control, is repeated from verse 9, referring to how Christian women should adorn themselves. Perhaps Paul repeats this phrase to clue Timothy and other readers in that the they refers to Christian women. So, Christian women, alongside Eve, 
will be saved through the born-to-die Messiah, Jesus, as they live out lives of faith, love, and holiness, further adorned with self-control. This would fit with the rest of Paul's letters, and Jesus' teaching, and James, and Peter's teaching, and the book of Revelation, and John's writings that highlight how Christians' faith must be expressed in terms of love and practical holiness. So, where have we been? Paul teaches Timothy how men and women should conduct themselves in the household of God. He expands his teaching for Christian women so that when women come to church, they should seek to be known for their good works rather than their pretty clothes. And they should prioritize giving attention to learning God's word as it is preached and taught by the elders of the church. Christian women are not permitted to aspire to the office of overseer in order that they might teach or exercise authority over men in the church. By coming to church eager to learn, Christian women uphold the God-designed, created authority structure between men and women, refraining from repeating Eve's disastrous overturning of that authority structure. Women, just like men, are saved as they trust in the Messiah, Jesus, who was born of woman as the human mediator between humanity and God. And their faith in Jesus will be demonstrated through love for neighbor, practical holiness, and self-control. We've mentioned already some implications for women in ministry, but as we conclude, I just want to remind you of the biblical truth that all Christian women are in ministry. Paul already taught the Ephesians about this reality. Back in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, we read, And he, that is the ascended, enthroned Messiah, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. All saints do the work of ministry. That includes saintly women, holy women, Christian women. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul provides one specific limitation to Christian women's ministry in the church. He reserves the office and function of elder for qualified Christian men, particularly as they teach and exercise authority over other Christian men. So what does that leave for Christian women? Quite a lot, in fact. I want to briefly focus on a couple of areas. First, teaching. As Paul commands Timothy to ensure that Christian women in the church are provided with every opportunity to learn Scripture, to learn theology, so Paul commands Titus to ensure that mature Christian women in the church are provided with opportunities to teach younger Christian women. In Titus 2, 3-5, Paul indicates that older Christian women are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Sometimes we look at this passage and we think that the kind of teaching and training that is being encouraged is the practical day-to-day activities of life. Older women are quick to offer tips and advice on housekeeping, cooking, managing emotions, handling conflict, conflict and communication in marriages. However, that, while very good and right, and that needs to happen too, that misses the point of what Paul's actually instructing here. At the beginning and end of this little passage, we find Paul's defining emphasis 
He begins by insisting that older Christian women must teach what is good. Well, how do they know what is good? That must be defined by Scripture. Remember, the original woman thought she could define what is good apart from God's Word. And she took the fruit, and she ate it, and gave some to her husband. Thus, when Paul says, teach what is good, he means what is good defined by God's Word. Thus, Christian women need to be good students of God's Word so they know what is good that they can then teach to younger Christian women. At the end of the passage, the emphasis on God's Word is made explicit. Older Christian women need to be teaching younger Christian women these things so that the Word of God may not be reviled. Well, that presumes that the way the women love their husbands and children, the way they exercise self-control, the way they live in purity, the way they work for the benefit of their home, the way they extend kindness, and the way they live in submission to their own husbands is shaped by the teaching of Scripture. Learning theology can be, should be, incredibly practical. Also, we should reiterate the point that Christian women can and should teach Christian men in certain contexts. In marriage, husbands, if you're not learning truths about God from your wife, you're probably not paying attention. But in general, in general, we ought to relate together as Christians, men and women together in the church, having conversations about Scripture, about Jesus, where Christian men might learn some beneficial insights from Christian women. I've already pointed to my own academic education, but I can actually look around this room and recall specific conversations and occasions when I learned something about God or about the Bible from a woman in this room. That shouldn't be problematic. That's not a violation of Paul's instruction here in 1 Timothy 2. I so value and have benefited and grown in this church and every church I've been a part of from the women in my life who have spoken to me and talked to me about God's Word. That's why we have ABF the way we have it. It's an opportunity for men and women to be together, to have conversations like this, so that we can hear the insights from other people, both male and female. And so I want to encourage you women to speak in those settings. Please. Men, you need to recognize that if you're not hearing from Christian women, you're missing out. You're missing out. And I have benefited significantly. And another encouragement to husbands, be sure, husbands, that you're not looking down on your wives, thinking that they can't or shouldn't teach you anything about God or His Word, or that you can't learn anything from them. In a really clear and helpful book entitled Embracing Complementarianism, the authors observe, in order for women never to teach men in any way, men and women would need to live on different planets. And also, from the Scriptures, remember the example of Priscilla and Aquila alongside her husband Aquila in the book of Acts. Priscilla is mentioned first probably because she was the dominant conversation partner. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) She corrected, corrected the theologian and Bible teacher Apollos, taught him the way of God more accurately so that his preaching ministry could be more effective when he then moved on to Corinth. You remember where that happened? That conversation happened in Ephesus. Lots of women followed Jesus as his disciples. 
Paul commends lots of women in his letters as his co-workers in ministry. And we don't get a description of like how were they co-workers, how did they assist him in ministry, but this detail should certainly encourage us to maximize, encourage, and value the ministry of women in our church. It's not just Titus 2 ministry, where Christian women are limited to ministering to women in specific ways. All of the varieties of service in 1 Corinthians 12... All of the gifts, the outworkings of grace in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 are to be expressed by Christian women and Christian men. All of them. The work of ministry in the church is for women just as much as it is for men. Qualified Christian men are given the responsibility of overseeing the church, which in part means developing structures and providing opportunities for all the saints, Christian men and Christian women, to serve by the strength that God supplies. Our church body will be healthier as more women participate, investing in the rest of the body, men and women together. So as we close our time together in worship, it's fitting, so fitting. I didn't even know this was going to happen the way it was going to happen. I thought it was just going to be a group of men singing, but it's a mixed group. Men and women singing together to lead us in worship, and that is beautiful. So please hang tight while they make their way up here. I'm not singing, so I'm going to get out of the way.